Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. What a privilege it is as a church to have young people like that uh, that are just learning. I wish that at her age I would have had a clue. And uh, yet here she is already planning how to minister and plant churches and do amazing things. We're very blessed with our students here. And uh, I hope you continue to join me in praying for them. Uh, Once again, I'm going to ask you the question, if you sat in these chairs today and I asked you how God's repurposing you, uh, what would be your story? Uh, It may be something dramatic and huge that the whole world sees, or it may be a small act of working that God does in your heart that he's brought you here Uh, to this moment in time to be a part of. So as we look at the the book of Ephesians, I want you to uh, think through how God is repurposing you through his story. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we'll be looking at the uh, first 13 verses this morning. There was a man driving down the road, and when he came to the, he saw something in the middle of the road, and he slowed down a little bit, and he looked, and it was a, a chicken. And the chicken was startled by him, and instead of running to the side of the road, it ran straight down the center of the road, and the man in the car noticed that the chicken had three legs, and he thought, I've never seen anything like that in my life, so he tried to, to speed up to get close to the chicken to see if it actually had three legs, and when he got closer, the chicken began to go faster, and he looked down, and he was doing 40 miles an hour, and he started driving to catch up to the chicken because he was going to try to get a picture of this three-legged chicken, and the chicken was doing over 60 miles an hour. And this guy was amazed straight down the center of the road, so he began to chase it, trying to get closer. When he got 60 miles an hour, the chicken darted down a dirt road and headed toward this farm, and the guy thought, i got to see this. So he went down the dirt road, and he pulled up at the farm, and when he looked, the entire farm uh, yard was filled with three-legged chickens. So he got out, and he knocked on the door, and the farmer came out, and he said, you have three-legged chickens. And the guy laughed. He goes, yeah, my wife and son and I live here on the farm, and we all, that's our favorite part of the bird. And so we just decided we were going to create three-legged chickens so we didn't have to argue every time we had chicken for dinner. And the guy in the car said, that is amazing. What do they taste like? And the farmer goes, I don't know. We can't catch them. <laughs> I love first hour. Second and third hour will stare at me like, you idiot. Thank you. And none of us got any sleep last night. Thank you. Hey, have you ever wondered what it would be like if you could wrap your mind around what the church could really be? Spend your whole life chasing it. Can't catch it. We're frustrated. The church in its best moments is incredible. The church in its worst moments can be devastating. This is why Paul writes the letter to the people of of Ephesus. He writes this letter we call Ephesians because he's trying to say, if you can get your mind around the best parts of what the church will become, it will blow your mind and your future into something amazing. But if not, it could be a frustrating group of people who don't have a clue why they get together. So he wrote this letter. You see, he broke the letter into two pieces. The wealth we have in Christ, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the walk we have in Christ, chapters 4, 5, and 6. The book is easily divided. First three chapters, doctrine of what God has given us. Last three chapters are the praxis, the way we live it out. So let's look at the beginning of the, of the change in the book from what we have in Christ to how we walk in Christ. First thing I point out today, it's an everyday walk. This is more than just an analogy. 
It's a teaching tool that Paul will use throughout his writings. Verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Oh, there's key words in this whole thing. One of the words is the word walk. You have to understand, in the culture of Paul's day, they didn't have vehicles. They didn't ride horses. They didn't do those kind of things. The military used those animals. They walked everywhere. So when Paul said to the people of Ephesus that you need to walk with Christ, he was talking about an everyday experience all of them would understand. This wasn't compartmentalized into when they gathered in the temple or the synagogue. It was about living in the everyday moments. Everywhere you walk, you walked. Everywhere you went to work, everywhere you went to socialize, everything that you did encumbered walking. And so he says, walk with Christ. And then he uses some significant words, therefore. You see, our ethic is not a demand upon us so that our performance will please God. This is not something we do to get God's attention. He said, no, walk with Christ. It's the most common example of discipleship Paul uses. Life is a walk. It's not a run. It's an everyday choice to be with him. Paul said, so therefore, as a prisoner, I encourage you. Some, words, uh, some of your Bibles say entreat. Some of your Bibles say urge. Some Bibles say encourage. Paul's telling us that if you listen to the Old Testament, the Old Testament would say, I will bless you if you obey me. The new covenant under Christ says, I've already blessed you. Will you obey me? It's a distinction. It's a major point that Paul is bringing to us is that we don't have to go and show off to get God's attention. We already have his attention so much that he sent his son to die to redeem us. So now that we have his attention, wouldn't we want to love him in return? So Paul says, therefore, I encourage you, I urge you, I entreat you to walk. And the fourth key word in the first verse is worthy. I encourage you to walk in a worthy manner to the way in which you were called. That there is an expectation that we're different. Now, here's what I want to point out. We've talked about it the previous four or five weeks, so I just want to be really quick with this. Uh, We don't act different. We are different. The blood of Christ cannot come upon you and leave you unchanged. So we are different. Live in the different, not in the past, not in the same. So it's an everyday walk. And then it's an everyday walk together. And this is the challenge, I think, to the American church, if I may, where we all live distinct Christian lives, all alone, going to do it our way, going to do it by ourselves, and we don't need any help, and that's just not biblical. We talked about that last week. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, I had originally, I was going to take every one of those words and show you what the Greek meaning was, but here's the truth. We are to be a people that are humble, gentle, forgiving, loving, and peace-filled. I can define the words, but that's all I need to say. Because of what Christ has done, he has allowed us to remain humble. We know who we are. We're, We're gentle and meek. We don't have to use power and authority to get what we want. We can use love peace, mercy, and forgiveness. It is the tools that God's called us to use to make a difference. And you cannot perform those things. You cannot become those things. You cannot enact those things alone. Notice that all of them splash onto other people. 
Your humility is not something that's about you. Your humility is how you stand in the presence of others. Your gentleness is how you treat others. Your love is what you do for others. Your peace is how you live in light of others. Your forgiveness is what you give to somebody else. It's all in community. And we do this for the unity of the Spirit. We've talked about unity now for three weeks in a row, and it's not because it's the only thing in the book. It's because unity is really hard. Carl Sandburg, the noted American historian, wrote, I thought this was fascinating. He said, the Civil War was fought over a verb. I want you to think about that. He said, before the Civil War, every treaty that the United States entered into had these words in it. The United States are, A-R-E. After the war, every treaty was signed, the United States is, I-S. Notice the distinction between a group of states that are to the United States being one. A battle was fought for unity, and it changed the nature of our country. The battle in the church today is over unity. Unity is not something we do. Unity is something Christ gives us through his spirit. And when we honor the spirit of Christ, we'll find the unity that preserves the bond of peace that God wants us to have. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul talks to us about what the unity is based on. Now, this is going to be different for many of us, but let's, let's look. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Interesting. There are seven basic spiritual realities. For all the things we differ on, and we should differ on them, we don't have to agree on music. We don't have to agree on time. We don't have to agree on many things that many churches have divided over. We don't have to agree on those. We do have to agree on these seven. This is what makes us one. And he lists them. One body. We are a branch of the church. We are not a separate church. We are a part of the big C. And that means that we are to be united. Here's what I want to tell us. We should have the same heartbeat that we have for the persecuted church throughout the world. Those people we pray for every morning that have to wake up today and decide, do I live or do I die for Christ? And those people are making decisions throughout the world today. It is not a myth that people are being persecuted. People are being persecuted, and we're not hearing about it because the news doesn't want to talk about it. And we should have the same passion for the neighborhood churches that surround us as we do for the persecuted church across the world. We can disagree about sports teams. We can disagree about restaurants. We can disagree about music. We can disagree about everything. But the one thing we can't disagree about is we are not at odds with other churches. We're at odds with the culture of a world that takes people, uses them, and destroys their soul. That's our enemy. That's our competition. There's one church, one body. Romans 12 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul was not writing to individual branches. He was saying every church that serves Jesus Christ, is serving a duty it's been given in its community, and we are all one. There's one spirit. 
The same spirit that led Jesus Christ throughout his life is the same spirit that he poured upon us, that he fills us with, that guides us. And the spirit of Christ does not divide. It unites around the most important things. We have one hope, the same of our calling. And we were called by Christ to enter into a covenant with him where his blood would pay for our sins and by that blood we could allow others to be forgiven from their sins so that God could build a new kingdom of people who live in hope. The hope of the resurrection. The hope of the crucified Christ. 1 Peter 1.21 Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope is not in Christ Church of Orinoco. My faith and hope is not in the elders of this church, even though they are wonderful, amazing men who sacrifice so much for this place. It is not in my teammates that I work in ministry with. It is not in my family. It is not in my heritage. It is not in the things that I believe. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Because he corrects me every day of all the things I used to think matter. He shows me every day they don't matter. I have one Lord, one faith, one hope. It's in Jesus. And he tells me there's one Lord. I don't even think we have to talk about that. Do we here, church? We know who the Lord is. Can you, can you tell me who he is? Do you know his name? I used to tease my boys all the time. Who's the best dad in the world? And they would name somebody else and hurt my heart. <laughs> one day they'll figure it out. In church, we should know who the one Lord is. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. One purpose for life. It's not to, for me to be known. It's not for you to be known. It's not for us to be known. It's for Jesus Christ to be known and what he offers us. One faith. Now, what's interesting in the book of Ephesians, I'm told that the word Paul uses for faith means saving faith. It means where our confidence goes. It's the belief that Jesus Christ is able to do what I can't. And then he says there's one baptism. Jesus is the object of our faith. And into that, into him, we are baptized. So this morning, as you saw the picture, this morning we're going to witness a young man who's going to be placed in the waters of baptism. And as Jesus was laid in the tomb and came out of the tomb, this young man will go into the water, be cleansed by the water, and will come out of the water walking in newness of life. I don't know how it works, but I know it do, does. One baptism. It's not a baptism into a church brand. It's not a baptism into a local body. It is a baptism into the big church, the big kingdom. It's being washed clean by the blood of Christ. And that's why we here ask every believer to be baptized into Christ, immersed into water, to walk in a newness of life so Romans 6 can be experienced, the hope, the purpose. And he says we have one God, just one God, one Father. We, we don't answer to any man, we answer to the Father who shows us in the church how to live our lives. You see, it's so clear. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. I'll fight about every one of those. I won't fight with you about the other things. They're just, they just don't matter. What matters are the seven things that Paul put out here. That's what we're to be unified about. And if we disagree on the other things, let's smile and shake hands. We don't have to do those things together. But we are going to do these seven together. And that's the strength of the church. It's the unity of the church. And it's the purpose of the church. So now we got that all settled. It's an everyday walk. It's an everyday walk together. And it's an everyday walk together in the same direction. And this is probably where most churches decide 
to be at odds. Let's look, read verses 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, that passage is scary confusing, so let's break it into little bite-sized pieces. The first piece is this. Jesus has gifted each believer. There is no ungifted follower of Christ. The Bible says that when you accept Jesus Christ and you're baptized into Christ and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he gifts every single one of us. Now, I know some of us grew up in churches where even the word gifted by the Holy Spirit caused us to panic because somebody misused it. Stop fearing the gifts of God. If God wants you to have that, it's the greatest thing you'll ever possess. And if it's given back to him to his glory and honor rather than to my glory and honor, it is a gift for everybody. Because there's no gift that God gives you that's meant to be kept to yourself. All the gifts that Christ gives are to be used to bless others. That's why Paul would write to a church that didn't understand gifts well. To the Corinthian church he wrote, 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same. Church, read with me. I'll wait till it gets up on the board. Now we'll do this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same. There are different kinds of service, but the same. Have you noticed the trend? One faith, one Lord, one. There are different kinds of working, but the same. You guys are catching up. Works all of them and all men. But now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Common good. The combination of our salvation and our gifting as designated by God means that you are absolutely strategic. Let me say that again. The fact that he saves you and gifts you proves that there's not a person in this room who is not absolutely strategic in God's plan. You are allowed by the mercy of God to be useful. Remember what we say around here often. You're not here to be important I'm not here to be important. We are here to be useful. And we are made useful because he redeemed us and he gifts us for the common good. We're here for a purpose. So if we look at that, let me show you the second thing. Jesus bought these gifts at a great price. The gifts that he gives us, it came not just from spare change in his pocket. It came from his absolute treasure. He says in verse 8, Verse 8, 9, and 10, Paul begins to write about his ascending and descending, and what does that mean? And if you were here last summer, in our first Peter series, we talked about this at length, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, particular passage in Peter where he talks to us about what this all means. Let me explain it this way. Paul is quoting Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, it is a, it is a psalm about a king who goes into war, wins a great battle, and comes back with the spoils of victory. Keep that context in mind. Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. What that means is the king went into battle. 
He defeated his enemy. He brought the captives that had been taken by the, the enemy and been taken into captivity. He freed all of those and he descended to the Mount Zion, the holy hill on which Jerusalem sits. And he brought the captives and he set them free and he brought back the gifts of his great conqueror. This is what Jesus did upon his crucifixion. Peter tells us and Paul tells us that in that time that he went down and he spoke to those in captivity, that everything they trusted, that everything they believed in, he had fulfilled. The great king went down, he freed the captives, and he brought them with gifts back to the holy city. Makes sense now, doesn't it? This is the one we believe in. This is the one we hold on to. Why would Peter or Paul mention this to us? Why would they tell us about this moment where Jesus went down and he proclaimed to Satan and all of his rulers, those that you have harmed are now freed. Those that you hold captive by my blood, they are now redeemed. Why would he do this? Because here's what he wants us to know. There is no spiritual power over us if the Holy Spirit is in us. People will often send me an email, and they're good emails. But they'll say, I'm worried about a demon possession or I'm worried about this. I need you to know this. There is no demonic power more powerful than the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if you're living out the victory of Christ in your life, Satan may come at you. He cannot take you captive because the power that's in you is greater. Ephesians 1. Let's go back to where we began several weeks ago. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who's he and him in those verses? Jesus. Jesus said, I have filled everything that was empty. I have replaced everything that's broken. So here's what I want us to think about. We cannot treat the spiritual gifting of God lightly when we understand the price he paid to purchase them can we if every one of us is gifted the question of the morning for all of us is are we using our gifting are we honoring the gift given to us in Christ to the glory you see Jesus died on the cross to save us and he died on the cross to enable you to serve him so a Christian who will accept salvation but will not accept service is someone who has misunderstood the price paid to allow you to do that. Both of them came at the same price, and both of them came in the same moment. Then Paul gives us a glimpse into the church, and this is where I want us to conclude today, verse 11, 12, and 13. And he gave, some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He gave gifts. Some are gifts that people notice and some are gifts that are very private and quiet but bless others. Paul says that God did all of this so that all of us could grow. You see, these gifts make the church the church. And a church where people are not serving. And and listen, this is not a guilt trip. I'm not saying this when I tell you that you've all been gifted. I'm not saying it to make you feel bad. I'm trying to encourage you that there is a reason you're here. And if there's an emptiness in your spiritual walk, if sometimes your walk's more of a sit or more of a stumble, 
then I'm not trying to shame you. What I'm saying is the missing ingredient is that you were not just called to be saved, you were called to serve. And when you're in your gifting, doing the things God's created you to do, your tail will wag for eternity. For many of us, we just haven't found our place in the kingdom, so the kingdom's kind of boring. Don't quit looking for that space where the way God wired you gives you a chance to contribute, not to be important, but to be useful. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. To build up the church. Oh God in heaven, forgive me for the moments I used your gifts to build up my reputation or to get my way or to control another human being. God, forgive me for those things. May I build up others instead of tear them down so I can be built up. You see, Paul says this one line, for the equipping of the saints for the works of service. Paul uses the word equip, interestingly here. It occurs 13 other times in the New Testament. And I want to share with you what it sounds like in other passages. The word equip means to teach. It means to help people receive good things. It means to supply what is lacking, to prepare for use, to form, mold, and shape, to mend and repair, to correct faults, to restore a fallen brother, to bring about a functioning harmony for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. It's a walk that we walk together in the same direction. When you came in this morning, there were two paint chips that were located on your seat. I'd like you to, to pull those out and have those in front of you right now. You also should notice that there are pens nearby, so get a hold of one of those too. What's unique is that those paint chips have been, been given to us and not everyone has the same color. In fact, you all have probably different colors. In fact, the two chips you hold may be different. There's something about those paint colors that are distinct. They all have a unique name that differentiates them from others. But those colors together create great beauty. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to, to think for just a moment. And I'm going to give you the, the, the quiet that's so awkward in church. And I want you to think about what has God laid on your heart, gifted you to do? What is your passion to do for the church, for the common good, for the equipping of the saints? What gift has he given you? It might be, some might say, I, I, I like to teach. I like to learn and teach. Some may say, I love to sing or, or play my instrument of joy to the Lord. Some of you say, I just love to help people. I, I love to pray with people. I love to pray for people. I could probably come up with 80 or 90, but you know deep down inside what it is that you love about being a part of the church that you want to offer to the rest of us. It's not bold or arrogant to say, I think God has laid on my heart that I like to teach, and so I want to teach his word. I don't think it's wrong to say I'd like to help people by what I learn. 
And so for a lot of us, in our acts of humility, we don't like to admit, I think I can sing or play an instrument or I love to work with children and encourage them or I just want to serve people who have needs or I want to help use my professional experience. Whatever it is, I'd like you to spend just a moment and write down on two chips that you have in front of you, those paint chips, I'd like you to write down what it is that God's gifted you to do that you could share within the church. It's going to be anonymous. Just take a moment and write those things down. What you're acknowledging in these moments as you write is the truth of Paul's text today. Not all of us want to do the same things. Not all of us are gifted by God to do the same things. But when all of us give our gifts back to the king, he makes a church. A church that equips and strengthens and helps people come into fullness of Christ to experience all that Jesus came to bring us. And this morning at the conclusion of our time of corporate worship together, If you'll notice toward the back of the room are some glass containers. We're going to ask you to keep one of those paint chips on your person. Keep it this week. Uh, Some people put it on the dashboard of their car. Some people hang it in the mirror in the bathroom. Some people put it in their Bible. Or or probably if you want to pay a lot of attention to it, put it on your phone. So every time you look, you'll remind yourself, I am here to be a blessing to others, to give my life for others. And take the other one and put it in one of the glass containers on your way out. When you come back next week, you're going to see that the distinction of all of our gifts is a beautiful image of what the church can and should be. Let's stand together this morning. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.